I want you to imagine that you witness a crime in progress, okay? Maybe it's a bank robbery or something, and you see someone pull a gun, you see them demand money, and you immediately, I mean, after you're ducking or running out or whatever your first instinct would be to make sure that you are safe, you're immediately calling 911, and one of the inevitable series of questions that the operator is going to ask you is basically, obviously, where are you? you know, what's the address or what's the place of business? But they're going to ask you what you saw, right? They're going to say, describe this person. Describe what this person's wearing. And you say, well, this person's about, you know, about six feet tall, kind of a medium build, red hair. He's got tan pants on and kind of like a blue checked shirt. Seems to be wearing like brown boots. And so then wherever that person goes that's dressed like that, they know that person can be identified as that's the person that just robbed the bank. And it helps police hopefully apprehend that person. I was just thinking as I came to this particular text, Colossians 3, it ought to be that easy for people to identify you and me as true Christians, to just look at us and say, those are people that follow Jesus. And even if I disagree with them, and I probably do, those are people that follow Jesus because we, they, I can see the character that that person or that group of people are clothed in. Okay, so come with me to Colossians chapter three this morning. And uh, we've already covered the first 11 verses where Paul basically says, look, you have been raised with Christ, so seek things that are above because that's where Christ is enthroned with all power. That's where Christ is at the right hand of God mediating for you, interceding for you, praying for you in love. Last week, we looked through this series of things, verses five through 11, where he says, now here's a bunch of stuff you need to put to death. Because it doesn't look like this new person that you are becoming in Christ. And that brings us to verse 12, where we read kind of the positive side of that this morning, starting with put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if we read this text as just simply a list last week of don'ts, this week as a list of do's, and we say, okay, this is what puts us on God's good side, right? If, if I do this stuff and I don't do that other stuff, I get the lists right, then I'm in God's good graces. If, if we read the text that way, then we've missed the whole point. Okay, Paul actually begins here in verse 12, you'll notice by pointing out, if you believe in Jesus. If you are a person of faith, you already have a right standing with God because of the work of Jesus. Now you just need to act like it. 
That's why the title of this morning's message is simply, Be What You Are. Okay? All the morality that's mapped out for us, particularly in the New Testament, is not God's way of saying, if you stop that and start doing this, then you can become a Christian, or this is what it means to be a Christian. It's kind of the opposite, where he says, God loves sinners. Loves sinners. God forgives sinners. God adopts sinners into his family. God transforms sinners by free grace. And what he's saying now is, because God has done that for you as a gift, now learn to think and to act and to speak as the person that you really are in Jesus. Okay, how do we do that? Well, that's what this message this morning is about. So just four basic points going through this text together. Number one, a big part of this text dwells on this imperative, put on the heart attitudes of Christ. Put on the heart attitudes of Christ. And this is so interesting because when we think of putting something on, we think of putting it on our outside. That's basically the only safe way for us to put something on is we're clothing our external. But when Paul says here this list of things and he says, here are seven things that you put on, I want you to notice that they're all seven internal traits or characteristics, or I said attitudes. This is important because even as followers of Jesus, we all know Christians, maybe some of us are Christians that try really, really hard to look healthy rather than simply being healthy. What I mean is instead of our focus being, God, I just want to be healthy in the way that I follow you in repentance and faith, obeying your word and just loving you and loving others, instead of just focusing on being Many believers are focused on looking as if we are being that sort of thing, okay? But notice where he goes here, verse 12, where he says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 14 adds love. Verse 15 adds peace. And this is so important that as maybe some of you are even just exploring Christianity, you're like, what is it that you people even believe? Well, Christianity is not just another religion because what religion typically does is it brings to you a set of rules, a set of principles, a set of things to remember, to recall, to rehearse, to live together. But it's always an outside-in approach to morality. What I mean is it says you, you live within these constraints, you live within these rules, and by doing that, it can affect change on your heart. Christianity says the exact opposite it's not like just do all these rules for the sake of doing rules. In fact, Paul said in chapter two of this letter, he says, don't follow that kind of religion because it actually doesn't have transformative power. But a gospel approach to morality begins with faith in Jesus. God transforms what's inside of you and that enables you to live it out. So it's an inside out morality instead of an outside in morality. And I want you to see the, the seven words that he uses here that just, we'll just quickly go through these, but seven attitudes or seven attributes where he says, this is the heart of Jesus, and I just want you to look like Jesus. Okay, number one, he talks about compassion. And it's really weird here because the Greek, which is the language this was originally written in, is literally put on the intestines of compassion, Okay, and nobody would talk like that today. We would not say, you know, intestines. But we still have 
words and we still have expressions that get at the same heart of what Paul is saying. We still say, when you, maybe you're watching a movie or you hear of the death of a friend or something like that, and you may still say, it was gut-wrenching, right? Or it tore my heart out. And what we're saying is, I didn't just process this on a mental level. I perceived that something bad happened. But you know when these kinds of things happen, you feel something in here. And that's why the Greeks used this phrase to describe it, the intestines of compassion, because they knew when I really feel compassion, I feel it in here. It's like all over, like something is turning and just wrenching, and I've got to do something. Okay, that's the word he's using here, compassion, which is a, a form of like empathy, a form of mercy, that you see something that moves you to act in grace on behalf of someone probably who's hurting. The second word here, the second attribute or attitude is kindness. Kindness is a little bit like love. It's kind of like, it's hard to define, but you know when someone's been kind to you. It's, uh, it's not funny, it's ironic. A number of weeks ago, someone was holding this event here in Denver about like, well, we just need to spread kindness. And so I caught these two women outside and they were putting these stickers all over our building, all over our cars, all over everything. And I tried to scrape these stickers off and they wouldn't come off. They just left a nasty residue. And I thought, well, that's this sad irony that you're trying to do something kind and it comes up kind of like just creating a bunch of extra work for other people and taking the paint off their cars. Okay, not necessarily kind because kindness goes beyond just an act that looks kind to a, a genuine considerateness. It's not just being nice, it's that empathy, it's a, it's a deep caring of I'm going to do something for you that again probably meets a deep emotional and or practical need, that's kindness. The third word here is the word humility. And I think the best definition I've heard of this is that it's not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Kind of a, a partner virtue of true humility is that you're just constantly thinking of others. You're others-minded. You're focused on the needs of others. And yourself, yes, you're aware of your needs. You take care of your needs, but just, just there's no preoccupation with self. There's a modesty of humility. Meekness, the fourth word, is a little bit different. This is the idea of gentleness, now, a humble person is probably meek, and a meek person is probably humble, but it's this idea, and some of you have heard this kind of like, and I, I hate if it's cliched, but it's not, meekness is not weakness, but very often it's a strength that's under control. It, again, it's that kind of modesty in a, a, a person who knows that they're strong, but is acting in love, is able to be gentle. You see, like a parent with their child, that physically they could be very imposing to a child, but because of the love and the bond that exists between parent and child, they can be very careful. They can be very kind. They can be very meek, okay? Next word is the word patience. Patience, um, this could actually be translated long-suffering or forbearing because the idea of this word is that you are calm, you are steadfast in the face of provocation, either circumstances that provoke you to anger, to frustration, to just impulsive activity, or people that just push you to your limits. The idea of patience is 
okay, I can defer, I can wait, I can hold back without complaint, without retaliation. That's the idea of patience. Love, this is the the familiar Greek word to many of you, agape, just the idea of a selfless and steadfast love. Not a love like the world loves of like, I'm using you, you're using me, we love each other, it's romantic, it's exciting, but one of us will probably get rid of the other as soon as, you know, it's no longer working out. I love the, the children's Jesus Storybook Bible describes this as a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And I think that really captures the essence of this kind of love, okay? Now, I want you to notice here something that Paul says about love in particular. He says, after you've put on all these other internal qualities, love is kind of the the overcoat. It's the thing that pulls it all together. And the way that I read that is Paul's basically saying that love modifies and it helps define each of these other qualities. Let me just give you an example. Go back to humility. You all probably know someone who is truly humble And you probably also know someone who just goes around with a false humility. And I think the difference at the core is probably love. Okay, a person with false humility may go around and they just constantly are down on themselves. You know, someone like that, just constantly out loud, this negative self-talk of like, I'm the worst, I stink, oh, I'm so terrible, oh, I'm stupid, that was terrible, and... I say it's a false humility because very often, why is that person going on and on about, I'm terrible, I'm awful? And you know a person like this. They are fishing, right? They're fishing. And at the very least, you could say that person has a constant obsession with self because they won't stop talking about themselves and thinking about themselves. And it can sound very humble, But you know very often it's just an obsession with self that comes out a little bit differently than just outright boastfulness. Now, true humility, if a person just loves God and loves other people and cares about other people, then humility is not going to come out as like, I need you to just feel, I'm just constantly empty, constantly thinking about myself. No, I'm thinking about you. And as I catch myself being selfish, thinking about myself, putting my own needs and my own ones first, I I repent of that. I flip that around because I really do love God and love others. That's the difference between false and true humility is love. And you can apply love. I want you to do this this week. It'd be a good, good little topic of conversation to just tackle one of these little attributes you struggle with and start thinking about how does love help define what that thing is and kind of modify, help me understand what that thing is so it's like an overcoat. And then one more here, he uses the word peace or the the attribute of peace. This is the New Testament equivalent of that great Old Testament word shalom, that Jewish word that's just, I mean, there's no word like it in the English language, that it's it's a tranquility, a just a total calmness. I use the phrase often, a non-anxious presence. That's the idea of someone who embodies the peace of Christ is just, there's a lot of anxiety around me. There are a lot of circumstances, a lot of people that push on me in different ways. But because I have the peace of Christ, the calmness of Christ, the, the welfare, the prosperity of Christ, I'm not anxious. That's the idea of peace, okay? And I want you to notice in verse 15, this one's also interesting because he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word there, rule, 
and I'm going to be anachronistic, but it's, it's a word that means to play umpire. Okay, maybe back then they had stuff like boxing matches and you had a referee. But today it's like the, the baseball umpire who's sitting there literally calling balls and strikes. And he's basically saying in, in modern terms, let the peace of Christ call balls and strikes in your heart. And I think what that means is when we're going through circumstances and we're like, I'm inclined to do this, but, but what would the peace of Christ say about that? Is, that? is that in the strike zone or is that out of the strike zone? Do I not go for that because that does not promote the peace of Christ in the lives of other people? So again, we, we all know people who go around and there's just this trail of broken relationships and this sowing of discord just angry, slanderous, gossipy. And, and even that person, if they were to take a step back and say, okay, if I'm gonna let the peace of Christ play referee or play umpire in my heart, there's certain kinds of conversations I'm not going to have anymore. There's certain kind of attitudes I just can't carry around and just bleh, just let it out all the time because that's not helping me enjoy the calmness and the tranquility and the prosperity of Christ. It's not helping the community of faith experience that. So I'm gonna put on peace, okay? Let me just make two general observations about these seven things now collectively. Number one, these seven words do not describe our culture. They do not describe our culture. In fact, really none of these except maybe love these are not even attributes that our culture values. We're not like, hey, show me a leader who's patient. No, we're like, I want to follow a leader who gets stuff done. You know? We're not like, show me something who's gentle. That I know you're powerful. And you know you're powerful, but you don't have to go around flaunting it and showing it off. You're restrained. You're under control. No, we're like, we, I want someone powerful who just grabs the bull by the horns, just gets stuff done. And this is not a list that our culture values. We are apathetic, not empathetic. We're mean-spirited, not kind. We're arrogant, we're harsh, we're not humble and gentle. Hateful, stirring up strife, not peaceful. Okay, the other side of that is though these words do not describe our culture, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories of Jesus. And what you'll find time and again is that these seven words, if you don't actually find the word in the story, you will find Jesus time after time after time just overflowing abundantly with these seven things. Like, this is just who Jesus is. And that's why I go back to this first point, and that's why I worded it the way that I did, where I'm saying what I hear Paul saying is put on the heart attitudes of Christ. This is not just a list. Do this stuff. What he's saying is, do you want to look like Jesus? You say you follow Jesus. Do you want to look like him? Then it looks like a heart that reflects these seven things. And by the way, someone ought to be able to walk in off the street or interact with you at work or school or the gym or just in a casual high pressure situation like the waitress didn't get your food out quick enough. And that person may even think, I don't agree with you about so many things that you believe, but 
I'm impacted by the grace and the kindness and the patience and the compassion and the humility that are flowing from your heart under pressure. And so my question here before I go on is, is this true of you? Are these seven attributes true of you? And I don't mean, are you doing these things perfectly because none of us are, we're not home yet. But, but what attitudes here would you look at and say, I need to keep putting that on? I know, for example, I'm not a super patient person. And when I see that, that Paul is saying the, the cloak of love that holds this all together, then maybe what he's saying is you just need to love others more and it will help you become a more patient person as the love of Christ works in you, okay? So let's go on here because then the rest of what Paul says here is basically this. If this is true of you, if you have this kind of heart, what do you think is going to happen in terms of your words and your actions? Well, whatever's in here, you know, I, I think of your heart like that little tea infuser ball, that whatever the loose leaf stuff you put in there, you add hot water, guess what's going to come out? Whatever's in there. Whatever's in there. You, you don't become a different person under pressure just instantly like, oh, I'm so sorry, but that's, that's just not me. What well, is you? And let me put it like this, if the, if the root of your life is kindness and compassion and humility and patience and gentleness and love and peace, if the root is those things, what do you think the fruit will be? And that's what's interesting about this text is if you're reading it as a list of Paul saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, he's actually not. He just says, put on. That's his imperative. And all these I and G words that you read now, and you, look, you can look back and just skim through the few verses we read, all these I and G words, like singing and, and teaching, they're not additional imperatives. They are participles. And why that matters is Paul's not saying, here's more stuff that you have to think to do. The one thing you have to think to do is put on the attitudes of Christ. And if you're doing that, here's your point too. Let consistent actions and words flow from your heart. That's all he's saying. He's giving you a test. How would I know, Paul, if my heart was being transformed by Christ-like attitudes? And he's like, well, here, let me just suggest a few things. This is not this is not exhaustive. Here's just a couple things. It would look like this. A, it would look like actions of forbearance and forgiveness. That's verse 13. If your heart was filled with love and patience and kindness and compassion, then actions of putting up with people and forgiving people would just automatically flow from that kind of heart because it automatically flowed from the heart of Christ and still does and always will. This is interesting that Paul assumes you live in a world with broken people and broken relationships. He's talking to a church, and he says, be patient, be kind, be compassionate, because you're going to bump into people that you're going to have to put up with. And the Christ-like thing to do is just going to bear with them, right? And you've had people like that in your life that you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know that we're going to ever be best friends, we're probably not going to agree on a lot of stuff, but for Christ's sake, I can put up with you and not constantly rub you the wrong way and make an issue. One commentator says, the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the very things that make possible their wearing. See, we think I can't be kind because this, like my spouse, 
and I don't mean my spouse, but somebody may be thinking that my spouse, my boss, my friends, my neighbor, they're just jerks. So I can't. Well, when is compassion most needed? Compassion means there's a need. And the very kind of circumstance, you're like, that need is too big for me. And you want to run? But that kind of circumstance is actually demanding the heart response of Jesus. When someone sins against you and hurts you deeply, that is actually bringing out of you the very qualities of Christ in terms of forgiveness. Okay, what else comes out of you? Those are actions of forbearance and forgiveness, but he also mentions here, B, words of instruction and praise. Paul assumes a follower of Jesus will be really into the words of Jesus. That's what he says here. And then out of that language of Scripture, we find our own language to teach one another, to remind one another. The word admonish, and that's probably the strongest probably the strongest variation of that. The word is nutheteo, from which we get like nuthetic counseling. So the idea is to warn someone or to counsel someone, to advise someone, to challenge someone, to exhort, to admonish, yes. But it's this whole mix of ideas. And the idea here is like the, the word of Jesus is so deeply implanted in you that when you speak words of encouragement or words of teaching, words of instruction, words of challenge into the life of another believer in community, you sound like Jesus. What kinds of words are most frequently and naturally on your lips? Or if Paul knew about laptops and cell phones, he would say your fingertips. Because so much of what we say now is done through our fingertips. But, but what kinds of words most naturally come to you? Are they words that build others up? that bring timely encouragement, timely challenge, timely exhortation, like you can do this, you must do this? Or are they words that tear down and divide? How about this? I say teaching and singing, words of instruction and praise. How about this? What, what songs are the soundtrack of your heart? If we could hear your heart, and you keep coming back to certain songs that you, you want other people maybe even to hear you sing. What songs are the expression of what's going on in your heart? You know, it's, it's not saying there's anything wrong with, you know, a, a pop song, something that just happens to be popular right now, or classical music, or country music. It's, it, this is not the point. But the point is we can take the words of Scripture like psalms, or deep theology like hymns, or maybe something that's just more personally applicable, and we mix those together, and by singing aloud, because of what God's done in our hearts, we're encouraging other people around us who get to hear us sing. That's actually what he's saying. The idea is, and we'll never be a church where we just like have a like rock and band, and so you can just be quiet and let the band do their thing, because they're off. The idea is you engage, to get, you engage with your body and your voice, and you're singing, and the people around you are singing, and, and it's an, an admonition, and it's encouragement of like, yeah, God is worthy of praise. And I didn't walk in here today feeling like that. But as I hear others sing and I deal with that thing that's going on in my life right now, all right, let's go. So um, let me just wrap this section up. Something that I love about this whole section is just, it's incredibly practical because what Paul's saying is, if you want to change anything, you have to change what you desire. And the only way to change what you desire 
is by replacing it with a greater desire. Notice he doesn't just say, hey, Christian, put off all this bad stuff, okay? Done, moving on to the next topic. Husbands, love your wives, okay? No, he says you gotta put that stuff off, but nature abhors a vacuum, right? You learned that in science class. So you don't just leave the vacuum, don't just leave the, okay, I put all that stuff off. He says, then as God is renewing your mind, you put this new stuff on, and you cultivate a love for it and a craving for it and an appetite for it that replaces that other thing. Look, if you love junk food like French fries and triple cheeseburgers, sodas and cheesecake, you are not going to be a healthy person if you eat that stuff all the time. But you can't just simply, if you love junk food, it actually does something in your body to create, like you have cravings for that stuff over and over again, as I'm talking about that right now. Someone is sitting out there and they're like, yeah, thanks, now I'm craving a triple cheeseburger because you're talking about a triple cheeseburger. And I can just see the fat running off of it and it just sounds amazing, okay? Um, but you, you know I've got to replace that appetite with a new appetite that's superior. And maybe it's an appetite for quinoa, I don't know. Like you just somehow develop an appetite for quinoa over a triple cheeseburger. Good luck with that one. Um, but, but maybe it's more like this. Maybe it's more like, I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way I feel. And I desire getting healthy more than I desire this. Or I, I desire sticking around to see my grandkids grow up more than I desire this thing, okay? Uh, we were talking the other day in our small group about this time. I had just met this girl online. We'd had a couple conversations back and forth online. And then I met Marty, also online. And I was just, I was sharing this as an example, and I said, and just suddenly, I never talked to that other girl again. And my teenage daughter says, Dad, you ghosted her. Okay? And I guess, I guess technically I did. So I feel terrible about that, and now that's off my chest, and I'm, I'm better. But this is what the Puritan Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. How do you change? And so practical, Paul says it here. The way you change is that you expel an old and harmful and earthly desire with a new desire for something beautiful and healthy and good, something Christ-like. Okay, now let me close, and this will just take a moment for each of these. How, how do we do that really practically? Is this, is this just, it sounds like it could be more moralism of like just put off that stuff yeah, God's kind of working in there somewhere to renew my mind, but then I, then I just put on all this new, new stuff, right? Well, notice the bookends. First of all, verse 12, where I started, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is your point three. Paul's saying, remember your identity in Christ. As you try to do this renewal, as you try to strip off what's filthy and, and be transformed from the inside out, he's like, you've got to remember what is true about you. It's the truest thing about you because it's what Jesus has done for you. He says, you're chosen, you're holy, you're loved. He adds in verse 15, you were indeed called in one body, so you are unified. Salvation has not just set you apart for this vertical, like one-on-one -on -one relationship, me and Jesus, my DIY theology, I don't need a community of faith. And listen, I know this is probably harder right now in our lifetime than ever because of COVID and limitations and fears and concerns. And some of those are very valid concerns, okay? Which is why we live stream right now. So you can be home, you can be safe. If you've got something else going on in your medical history and you should be home, God bless you, we're gonna be there for you. 
okay? But if your attitude, this is what's so important, if your attitude is, I don't need community, well, then you're not just walking in disobedience, you're actually walking in a, a form of dysphoria because you're denying something that's true about your core identity, that you are unified in Christ. So remember who you are in Christ. But then fourthly, rehearse the gospel with gratitude, and this is such a key. What's going to help you have the kind of heart that produces these kinds of actions and words? And Paul says three times, it's gratitude. Be thankful with thankfulness in your hearts, giving thanks. Giving thanks for what? Well, that's why I call it gospel gratitude because you have an example of this in verse 13. He says, remember this, friends, when you are called upon to forgive someone who has hurt you deeply and maybe repeatedly, what does he say to remember? He says, remember you were forgiven by Jesus. See, and I know when we're hurting, when someone's backstabbed you, when they've divorced you, they've left you, they've, they've, they've severed your friendship, or they've taken away a job that you really value, or any number of things, it is not easy to think this way. That's why he's like, just, just go through life with an attitude of thanksgiving. Just constantly be that person who is looking for, yeah, life stinks right now, but I'm so thankful that God is this and that this is still true. And maybe that's the only thing I have to cling on to today, but then that's what I'm going to be thankful for today. And, and you're going through life and you're, you're thankful for the Lord and you're thankful for what people are doing in your life. And then, bam, that thing hits you, that circumstance, that person and what oozes out of you. You didn't see it coming. What oozes out of you is your truest, deepest you. And what Paul has just done is he's given you kind of a roadmap for when that hot water hits, what comes out of you thinks and looks and acts like Jesus and not just like the earth. And I think with the election here in a couple days and what's gonna happen you know, ahead of that, Again, I think Christians right now have, a, have an amazing opportunity to just say, God, give me this kind of heart. Give me these kinds of attitudes. Now help me, Spirit, be who you say I am. Let's pray.